All right, well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9 this morning. Esther 9, it's my great honor and privilege to be able to bring you God's Word from this wonderful little book that we've been studying now for 10 weeks. This will be our last, God willing, uh, sermon in the book of Esther as we finish up this uh, series. We actually have a lot to cover today, and, uh, and, and so I hope you are able to listen quickly. Uh, as I may, will be speaking quickly, I trust, and I'm excited to be able to do so to explore all the truths that God has for us today. And just for time's sake, typically I know I, I read the entire passage this morning uh, to begin our, our sermon. I'm just going to this morning read the first five verses of Esther chapter 9, but rest assured we will cover them all in the sermon. But uh, here, Esther uh, chapter 9, as our Old Testament scripture reading, verse 1, hear now the word of God. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their, their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And it is a, uh, even as we ended that last verse, it's somewhat of a sobering word. It is, I think in many ways, a difficult passage. One that's often not considered. Help us to consider it well this morning. With submissive hearts. And we hope that we would not only... uh, be aware of the sobriety of this passage, but also the joy that it calls. And so help us, dear Lord, to think deeply today about all that we have received in, from you in Christ, all the blessings that we have, namely the salvation which we now enjoy and will enjoy. And we pray that that would lead to a rejoicing in our hearts, celebration amongst your people, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in about a week's time, my family, uh, we're going to head out on vacation to the Outer Banks. We're very much excited to be able to do so. We've never been able to do this as a family before. The place where we're going is right next to Kitty Hawk. And some of you know there in Kitty Hawk, there is a 90-foot hill, which stands a United States... A national memorial. On that 90-foot hill is a 60-foot obelisk uh, commemorating an invention that changed our world, manned flight. It was, of course, Oliver and Wilbur, uh, who happened to be pastor's kids, by the way, so there is hope for them, after all. On December 17, 1903, tossed a coin. Oliver won. He climbed aboard their homemade airplane that they made in their bicycle shop. 
The airplane coasted down the sandbar on a wooden rail and then rose into the air for 12 seconds, flying 120 feet. It's interesting to know that their, their pastor father thought that man flight was a foolish idea. He said, as many have, I'm sure, that if God intended us to fly, he would have given us wings. Well, the father wised up. Six years later, he climbed aboard the airplane that all Orville flew for seven minutes. And during that flight, his father leaned close to his son and shouted over the roar of the engine, Higher, Orville, higher. And now we have a memorial standing in honor of that achievement. I think that's a good idea for us to do things like that. I think having us uh, erect memorials uh, to acknowledge great feats is important for us as a people. My family just uh, recently, a year ago, uh, went and visited uh, for the first time the World War II Memorial there on the National Mall. And it was incredibly moving and and very sobering and and got us to think and got us talking about the cost of freedom and, and the sacrifice that is paid for it. And it was very helpful for Our family, of course, memorials all over the place, and I think that's important for us to do so. But sometimes memorials aren't aren't places, they're days, holidays. Just a couple uh, days from now, we will have the the 4th of July, a celebration of uh, this nation's birth, its independence. And we have other days, of course, and Veterans Day and and, uh, uh, Thanksgiving, and Christians have their days as well, do we not? We have things like Christmas and Easter, opportunities for us to reflect and to remember, memorials for us to rejoice in what has happened. In fact, I think every Sunday is in many ways a memorial for the Christian. It is, the, after all, the Lord's Day, the day in which we recognize that our God has conquered the grave, that Jesus is alive. Well, we're going to see today in the book of Esther another memorial, a feast called Purim. A feast that, in fact, the Jewish people uh, continue to celebrate today. A feast that was uh, originally a celebration of salvation. Now, you've already seen in in the brief scripture reading I've already done that that salvation was a bit bloody. It, It included war. And this is in many ways part of the book of Esther that we tend to forget, we overlook. I mean, we all love the book of Esther, don't we? we, we you know, the, the underdog, the Jewish orphan girl and their adopted father, they rise up and they, they uh, over, you know, overcome the mightiest uh, powers in all of the world. I mean, we, we all, it's, a, it's a feel-good story. It's like when the Yankees lose. Everyone feels good, right? Now, let me explain. The Yankees is a baseball team. It was a sport we used to play here in America, Okay. And we were, we were all happy when they lost. We all read the book of Esther. We're all very, very happy. And we think this is a, 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 a wonderful book this is. And then we come to chapter 9. And we get the Persian Hunger Games. We find 75,000 people are killed. We find dead bodies impaled on poles at the request of Queen Esther. And this is, this is one of those passages that the world looks to and says, Your Bible is primitive. Your Bible is out of touch. Your Bible sanctions genocide. It's a terrible book, and and I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of your God. Have you heard that before? College professors, neighbors, co-workers, family members, they've, they've brought those accusations against passages like this. So the question for us as Christians is, what do we then do when we come to passages like this? I think there's a lot of options before us. We can ignore them. We can skip over them. 
as I believe most Christian churches do today. We just don't want to handle this. We don't want to deal with this. And so we're going to go right by it, go on to something else. Or another option is we could change it. I mean, you could always find a scholar who says the Bible doesn't say what it actually says. We could ignore it. We could, we could change it. Some of us, I think maybe I have this in my heart, we might apologize for it. And we might, we, you know, we, we, we might say, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry that's in there. I don't know what to do with that. The Old Testament is a little bit bloody. I'm not, not sure how to handle that. You know, uh, you know people say, well, the Old Testament God was different than the New Testament. It was it's, it's almost as if the Old Testament God was in junior high, right? It's like that's God in the seventh grade. He's a lot more mature once you get to the New Testament. All he does is he's, he's wearing a cardigan. He's giving out hugs. If you get to the New Testament, it's great. We're just we're sorry about the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with it. Right? By the way, I have like six junior hires, so I, no, no, no offense to anybody out there. Okay? Okay. Uh, so we, we, can, we can apologize for it, say God's grown up now, or the option number four, the one I suggest that we do today, is that we submit to it, that we believe it, that we teach it, and we yield to it. And it is, once again, a reminder, and and I like to remind you of this often, that if God actually exists, he's probably different than you. He will probably do things that you don't understand. If If God only does things that make sense to you, you probably have made up that God in your image. But if he actually exists, he'll probably do some things that are somewhat perplexing, and, and I think we see it here. In fact, I, I would suggest to you, as I've already prayed, prayed that the, the author of Esther intends for us to actually celebrate what we read today as good news. There should be cheering because of this. So if we are embarrassed from this passage, we are actually missing the point in which it was given to us. As one pastor puts it, salvation leads to celebration. And that's what we're going to consider today. Let me just review in case you're just joining us now in this very long story here at the end. There is an edict on a certain day that anyone can kill their Jewish neighbors in the nation of Persia and take their stuff. Mordecai, uh, the queen's father, through the queen's cunning, rises to the second highest authority in all of Persia, passes another law or another edict that says the Jews on that same day can now defend themselves. And we will see that defense today in Esther chapter 9. It is a picture, I believe, of salvation. And that salvation leads to celebration. I think that has huge implications for us. That we too have been saved in a far greater way. And by the way, just to remind you, our salvation it was bloody as well. It was violent as well, lest we forget. And that should therefore lead to celebration. You should be asking yourself throughout this sermon... Is there celebration in my heart due to the salvation in which I have received? As we begin, scene number one, salvation. Here we go. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commands and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to gain mastery over them. We finally arrived to this day, the day of the massacre, two edicts permitting civil war in the nation of Persia, Jew versus Persian, Jews versus Amalekites. The Jews, of course, are vastly outnumbered, and I trust they are hoping the, the, simply the threat of their self-defense would discourage violence against them. And yet, it seems the temptation to the plunder that they would have is too much for the Persians to pass up. 
And so I think you can imagine what they must have thought, the Persians, that is. We're going to have new homes. We're going to have new fields. We're going to have new herds. We're going to get wealthy. And we're going to have it all by the time the sun sets. And so they get their weapons ready. They strategize how to attack on this great and faithful day. And, and here they come, hoping to have mastery over them, as you see in verse 1. Notice the writer does not keep us in suspense as to the outcome as you finish verse 1. When we read, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So the Persians thought this would be a day of domination. And they discovered the reverse was true. That those who hoped to de- uh, destroy the Jews were themselves destroyed. And so really, Esther 9, verse 1, is kind of the headline. And then the rest of the chapter kind of fills in the details. You'll notice verse 2 tells us that the Jews were simply defending themselves. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. You see, they, they, they didn't initiate this action by raiding their neighbor's home. That is not what's happening here. The enemy sought to slaughter them. The Jews sought to protect themselves. It is sad, I think, to see the hatred that Haman had in his heart for the people of God it was not only in his heart, but was in many hearts throughout this empire. There is a great hostility, as we have learned from this book, between the worlds and between those who belong to God. Genesis chapter 3, God even foretells there will be enmity, hatred, hostility, violence between the seed of the woman, that is God's people, and the, the seed of the serpent, that is the world. And God's people here graciously warn others, do not attack. We will defend ourselves. They refuse to heed that warning and are therefore destroyed. I believe there is great parallels to the gospel in in that statement. Because much like today, those who refuse to yield to Christ, they too will face a great day of trouble. We also notice the role of their leaders, in part, in particular, because they followed Mordecai. Look at verse 3. All the officials of the provinces and satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. More and more powerful. I, I want to take a, note, a moment just to note... Uh, Mordecai's authority here. In fact, we've seen authority throughout this book. It's actually an interesting book to read with that lens, just looking on how authority is used. And we've seen it, of course, really up to this point, abused, haven't we? Uh, Those in authority have, uh, have either abused their authority or neglected their authority. Women have been treated like animals. We've seen personal revenge. We've seen uh, edicts of genocide. Uh, This is all coming about because of authority is being misused. Sadly, this, by the way, is not an ancient problem alone. It continues today. There continues to be the misuse and the abuse of authority. And simply not just political authority. How many kids have been permanently scarred when their fathers misuse their authority authority in rage and abuse how many of our sisters have been spoken to inappropriately by a boss at work how how many have been humiliated and harassed by an unrighteous 
police officer? How many have been confused and tempted by our universities and our corporations and our cultural entities that demand conformity to their understanding of the world without any regard for religious convictions? How many people have been led astray by false teachers who pastor very large churches in our land? And so authority is continually misused. And we've seen this in the book of Esther. And so I think it's worth noting in light of that how a great good now comes from the right use of authority. Mordecai's grown more and more powerful, and he uses that not for his own gain, right? No, no, but, but to bless the people. He blessed those who are under his authority. When we get to chapter 10, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. It's going to end with how Mordecai uses his authority for the welfare of others. And so let's just be clear that we're reminded in this book that authority is a stewardship that is given by God and it can be used for great harm or great good. That's why we pray often for our political leaders, as the scripture tells us, knowing that the authority that they have can be used for one of two ends. That's why we continue to ask you to pray for the elders who have been given by God authority over the members of this congregation. Why we ought to give thanks for our military and for our police who protect us and who serve us and good bosses who help us succeed and parents and teachers who give us the word. All these good uses of authority, of course, are just a preview for the one who has perfect authority. The one who is coming soon. What what were the last words our Lord left with us? And before he ascended to heaven, were they not... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He has it all. And so we use it only as a stewardship. As he entrusts it to us, may we use it so that great blessings might come to God's people and even to this world. Well, Mordecai, I think, uses that authority and it brings them, the people of God, that is, to victory. As you see in verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. And so we see the victory here. And the victory is going to be highlighted in the capital city, Susa. Which the next ten verses are focusing on. And so you see as much in verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed Parshendatha. And Dalpha. And Aspatha. And Paratha and Adelai, and Eridatha, and Parmasta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. We see that 500 die in Susa, but the focus, of course, is on ten, the ten sons of Haman. Their names are given, in fact, and I intentionally read them slowly, to remind us that each one of those men had an eternal soul. Each, this is not fiction. These were real men who died on this day. Haman dies, and his sons die, presumably because they share their father's hatred for the people of God. And you think about ten sons. What a legacy. 
I mean, I only have eight children. He's got ten boys. How many daughters must be added to that? Ten sons who will carry on potentially their father's legacy for for hundreds of years, for generations. And instead, what we have is tragedy. In fact, what, what is it we often say? The American proverb, perhaps, like father, like son. Sons follow their daddies. And there are too many daddies who are more interested in a good time than a godly legacy. And so may I just for a minute give you your Father's Day sermon a week late. Dads, you need to be talking to your children about God in order to leave a legacy behind you. You should think in terms of legacy, not in terms of leisure, but in terms of what you will leave behind in this world in those who will follow you. We want our children to say, when they think about dad, dad was always talking about God. He was always talking about Jesus. We'd always get in a situation. He said, well, what, what, let's, let's apply the gospel to this. Always bringing me back to my faith. This is what we want to be as dads. And not just dads, granddads. Granddad loves Jesus. Granddad's always talking about Jesus. Granddad loves, loves Grammy. They've been married for 60 years. Grand, granddad loves his family. And granddad is always pointing us to Christ. I'm telling you that there is coming a day of resurrection. Christ will return and all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. And on that day, there will be a great family reunion. Uh, and if Christ tarries with generations of people that you, from you that you will never meet, yet you shall on that day, if God uses us to point our children to him, and then their children, and then their children, and then their children. I'm longing for that day. Uh, And it's all, of course, by God's grace. He took a 17-year-old punk kid in, in Huntington Beach, California, who wanted nothing to do with him, and he said, you are mine. And a family's trajectory changed. And I pray by God's grace, for generations to come. Sadly, that was not the case of Haman. Haman, well, he loses his position, he loses his estate, and he loses his sons. If you remember, all three he boasted about, they're all gone because he does not repent. The king gets report of this. Doesn't seem all that interested, strangely enough, as you look in verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further request? It shall be fulfilled. He doesn't seem to care all that much. So we just ask her once again. We keep seeing this. Okay, queen, what do you want? Her request is probably not what you are expecting from pretty little Esther. She asked for two things, as you see in verse 13. And Esther said, if it please the king, let let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. That's number one. Number two, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. She says, well, honey, 
Uh, I know we killed a lot of people today, um, but I was kind of hoping for another day to do the same. And so we would like to kill some more people tomorrow. And by the way, the 10 sons of Haman are dead, but I would like them hung upon a pole. As we've already discussed, this is most likely impaling upon a pole so that everyone can see. Now that's surprising, isn't it? I mean, listen, I, I don't know how many Esther picture books I have at home, and none of them have this. Right? There's no page with 10 bodies on poles. This, is not, this does not make the flannel graph in Sunday school class. We, we don't want to deal with this. This is difficult. What is, what is going on? What? I mean, Haman said you get one day to attack the Jews. Esther says, I'd actually like two to fight back. I mean, many scholars are scandalized by this. They think this is bloodthirsty. They think this is, this is uh, violent. Certainly, it is violent, isn't it? I mean, what, 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 this is what makes the book of Esther so difficult to preach and to understand. She's not commended for this. She's not uh, condemned for this. We have no uh, inclination as to our thought process. But she said, this is what I want. Now, if we read carefully, we'll notice that she's asking only for what is according to the edict. You look, read the edict in Esther chapter 8, and it is only self-defense. So maybe she gets wind that more people are going to attack. I don't know. So can we defend ourselves one more day? We also know, as we saw earlier in our study in Deuteronomy 25, that the Amalekites are to be blotted out. These are Haman's people. Maybe this is what she's doing. She's doing what Saul should have done long ago and refused to do. I also will tell you, if you read the book of Joshua, you will find that Joshua will take the defeated enemies of God and hang their dead bodies on trees as a sign of God's curse upon them. And so all that might help us in our conclusion to to kind of discern what's going on uh, with Esther. But I, I think that perhaps the point we should draw from this is that God's people are flawed. You understand that? We are so desiring to find righteousness that we often look over the the flawed realities in the people that God uses. We long for someone perfect. We, of course, have someone who's perfect. His name is Jesus. And you line up anyone next to Jesus, they don't look so good, including Esther. But yet, what, what we should be encouraged that God uses flawed people, right? Like you and me. We're no better than any of these people, and yet God is showing us, I'll use them, I'll use you. As one pastor likes to say, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And we praise God for that, and we see that, I think, perhaps here. Well, the result of that extra day is recorded there in verse 15. I'm afraid it's more bloodshed. As you see, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. There's another 300 who have died. And that, of course, is just in the capital. You notice the empire-wide, the number is far, far more sad, I suppose, verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. 75,000. That's a, that's a lot of people. It is a sobering amount. And yet God is doing this, make no mistake, to preserve his people, to save them. God's enemies are punished. God's people are saved. And I tell you, this is just one example of many that testify to us that God will save his people. Maybe not in this life, 
but he will save them, right? And you ask Christians in Nigeria today or Pakistan or North Korea, they're not getting saved from their enemies like the Jews in Persia were, but they will be saved. Sometimes now, in this life, sometimes from the life to come, we will be saved from our enemies. Or perhaps I should say, we shall be saved from our enemy. For the Bible tells us who is our enemy whom we need to fear. It is none other than God himself. You might want to read Romans 5 to see that we stand in the flesh in opposition to God. We in our flesh have declared war upon God, and yet God in great grace to us does not defend himself from us, but forgives us and saves us. And so he does here in the people of his people in the book of Esther. You notice, by the way, I don't know if you caught this, I'm sure you did, the the Jews did not profit from their enemy's doom. Did you notice that? Three times they were told they took no plunder. Verse 16, verse 15, verse 10. Now, if you read chapter 8, the law says specifically they are allowed to the plunder of their enemies. You say, well, why didn't they take it then? If they're allowed, uh, it is permitted for them to have it. Well, we're learning that this is not a battle for their own personal enrichment. In fact, what we see here is that they are bringing the judgment of God upon those who stand in opposition to God. That none of those who died on this day were innocent. That they were judged by God through his people. This, in Esther 9 and in other places in the Old Testament, like the book of Joshua, is a picture of the future judgment of God when Christ returns. That Jesus will destroy those who refuse to give up their evil ways and receive his mercy. Theologians, if you're interested, call this proleptic judgment proleptic judgment, the final judgment brought forward, that we might have a picture of it, a demonstration of it as a warning to all who become aware of it, that if they persist in their rebellion as well, they will come to a terrible end. This this Esther 9 is given to us now, even as we consider it, even as you consider it, is given to us, I think, in some way to help us prepare to meet a holy God who has an unappealable justice. And receive the mercy while he still offers it. The wonderful news I can tell to you today is that God offers you mercy. Any of you mercy. If you will receive it in Christ. Right now, God in heaven would give that to you. If you would place your faith in Jesus. And yet they, 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 they understand this so they don't take any of the plunder. This is sometimes called a holy war. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? This is not the normal pattern. We don't see this pattern even in the conflict in the Bible. But every once in a while we see a a holy war. When when God's people are executing God's judgment upon another people. Let's be be clear. As we see passages like that, no other nation had that privilege. And, I should hasten to add, no other nation has that privilege today. Including the current state of Israel. This is a very rare time in which God's people are able to execute God's judgment upon God's enemies. And you see the people doing unlike what King Saul did, who took the plunder for himself 500 years later. They took no plunder. I think this is an amazing self-denial. This, to me, is incredible. I mean, could you imagine, let's say you have four children, and now there are in the neighborhood four estates that are legally yours. They're yours. Those who occupied them are dead. The, 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 The state says you may have them. And you're thinking, well, someone's going to have them. Someone's going to take them. Right? And if I don't take them, 
You know, who's going to move into the neighborhood? Wicked people are going to come in. They're going to take them. Certainly these estates are, are better uh, in my hands. I could give them to my children. They got a home. They got furniture. They got uh, cattle and, and all the rest. They got wealth. I could give them all to my children, and we could pass this on to generations to come. So, certainly, certainly they're better in my hands. In fact, I might even give God a couple percent, you know, uh, to boot, right? You know, and that, I got a, that, you know that tiny attorney who lives in your brain that justifies your sin, Right? And he always makes those arguments. This is why it's okay for you to sin in this time. He had to be I mean, making an incredible argument at this time. And yet they chose to ignore it. They didn't take it. They, they chose not to be mastered by money, but be mastered by God. I, I think that's an extraordinary self-restraint, self-denial. I think some of you, perhaps, and I don't know which ones, but I, I'm sure some of you need to make a similar decision. That is, you need to repent because you have what you should not have. God gives us everything we have as a stewardship. It is not ours. It is God's. Moreover, God is clear as to how we are to use those resources in which he has given us. He makes demands. We would call them commands even in the Bible. We find them there in Scripture. And, and some of you are violating those commands of God. And you are taking all the resources in which God has given you, in which he commands you to use in a certain way, and yet you are spending them all upon yourself. So I pray you would repent. I pray that you would submit to God and trust God and not be mastered by money, for Christ has told us we cannot serve two masters. You see, they not only gained mastery over their enemies, they gained mastery over themselves. What what was it, Haman, who said, they're not like us? Well, he was right. They're not. They weren't like them in their self-denial. You see this great salvation that God brings. The Jews then respond in scene number two, and these next three points will be much more brief. You see, secondly, scene number two, celebration. We go from salvation to celebration, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. You see, this day of mourning has now become a day of celebration, kind of like Good Friday for us. The fighting stops, the celebration begins. I think this is all spontaneous. You imagine the emotional toll that, that, they're, that they're carrying, that they've been living for months, realizing a battle is coming, preparing to defend your kids, right? The kids will hide out here. Okay, we'll get the weapons ready, okay? And then the fatigue of actually going into hand-to-hand combat. I, I mean, we can't imagine what that would be like. I'm sure none of us could even comprehend what it would be like to fight for your lives and the lives of your children. And then it's over. It's finished. The day ends. And then there's this victory. I mean, you can imagine the hugs and the shouts and the screams and hoisting children in the air and the dancing in the streets as they celebrate the victory that they have. The war is over. Their lives have been spared. They have been saved. 
Much like uh, the Jews when they crossed to the other side of the Red Sea and saw their enemies washed away by the mighty hand of God. What do they do in Exodus 15? They begin to rejoice and sing and praise God who gave them the victory. Perhaps much like our own nation. Even uh, when World War II has ended, you've seen the pictures, haven't you? How people just ran out to the streets and begin to hug and, and uh, strangers and dance there in the streets, celebrating the victory, celebrating the salvation in which they had received. You see, you see, what the Bible teaches us over and over again is that it's not enough to win the victory. It's not enough to receive the salvation. It needs to be celebrated. There needs to be rejoicing and praise to the one who has brought it. And if that's true for them, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is that not true for us? Do we not every Sunday celebrate a victory that we have in Christ? Do you have reason to rejoice? Do you have reason to cheer and to celebrate and to be filled with joy? I believe you do. For you have received rest from your enemies. You notice that phrase? It's there in verse 16. They got rest from their enemies. Verse 17 says they rested. Verse 18, they rested. I know my translation, by the way, says in verse 16, relief from their enemies. Exact same word in Hebrew that's translated rest in verse 17 and 18. And again in verse 22, you'll see, once again, they're they're reminded they got rest from their enemies. This is the great promise in the Old Testament. We see this over and over again. That that God God explains that the Lord... The Lord God will give you rest from all your enemies around you. The problem was it never lasted. So you read scripture, you'll learn that Moses gave them rest from their enemies. And then Joshua after him gave them rest from their enemies. And then David gave them rest from their enemies. Now we see what Esther and Mordecai, through their work, giving them rest from their enemies. These these great uh, people that God uses bringing rest, but the, the rest never lasts. Right? That's why they have to keep getting it again and again. That is until... Jesus comes. You see, Jesus has come also to give us rest from our enemies, but not by attacking them, but by letting them attack him. Isn't that interesting? He dies for his enemies. So what's he doing? Why, Why is he dying for his enemies? Well, in dying for his enemies, he's defeating them by making them his friends. By turning them from enemies to followers. Now make no mistake, the Bible tells us he's going to come again, and, and we'll see this in our study of 2 Thessalonians in the coming months. He's going to destroy those who persist in rebellion. Yet when he came the first time, he didn't come to kill the Romans in order to once again give the people of God a temporary rest from their enemies. He came to kill enmity itself. Hostility, violence, hatred. Right? If, if an enemy comes against you and they hit you, what's your default response? And we all know this. It's to hit them back. One way or another, they ruin my reputation, I'll ruin their reputation. They do this against me, I'm going to do this against them. We strike back. In fact, we might even defeat them. But what remains? Enmity remains. Hostility remains. Hatred remains. Jesus came not just to defeat enemies, but to defeat enmity with love and with grace. The best way to defeat your enemies is to make them your friends through the gospel. Just a couple weeks ago, I learned of this man named Jacob DeShazar. You could could go on his website. He's dead now, but he gives his testimony. It takes about 10 minutes. It's incredible. 
Jacob Deshazar was a World War II airman that was shot down over Japan. He survived, along with many of his crew, the crash, but he was imprisoned in Japan during World War II for three years. Most of that time he spent in solitary confinement when he wasn't being tortured. Many of his fellow airmen were tortured to death. About halfway through his imprisonment, by, by uh, uh, interesting circumstances, he was given a Bible. Now, he was no less than a believer. wasn't a Christian. They thought, well, you're American. Here, have a Bible. And so he read it and read it again and read it again. And on the sixth reading through the Bible, he came to Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in that solitary confinement in a hole in Japan in the 1940s, Jacob Shazar confessed Christ as his Lord. And he says, almost as if it was a light switch, the hatred that he had for the Japanese was gone. Immediately. Immediately vanished. He was eventually freed, and he decided, I need to come back to Japan to tell him about Jesus. And so he did. He spent the rest of his life as a missionary in Japan. He wrote a pamphlet which entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. A million copies were printed and distributed all over the country. It just so happened that a man named... Uh, let me get his name right. Fuchida. Mutsu, uh, Mitsuo Fuchida was in a railway station, found one of these pamphlets, and was intrigued by it, picked it up, and read it. Fuchida happened to be the lead pilot in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. He was the one who gave the command, Torah, 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 attack. He read that pamphlet, was so convicted by it, it brought him to the Bible, He's reading the Gospel of Luke, heard Jesus pray from the cross to, uh, for his enemies, Father, forgive them. And at that point, Fuchida gave his life to Christ. He then spent the rest of his days touring Japan with Deshazar, preaching the Gospel to mortal enemies brought together. How? How were they given rest from their enemies? By grace grace. Right? Christ has shown us how we can have permanent rest from our enemies by destroying enmity through grace. And for some of you, that, that's your testimony, isn't it? I, listen, I hated God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I would have, I, I would have cussed him out if I saw him on the street. I didn't want God. There was enmity between me and him, and he had every right to destroy me, to defeat his enemy named Stephen Karn through judgment, and rather, he defeated that enmity through grace. That's worth celebrating. That's worth rejoicing. God gave me grace instead. Christian, he's given you grace instead. You have received grace. You have something to celebrate, and that celebration should happen over and over and over again, as you see, scene number three, commemoration. Commemoration, as you know, verse 20, and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year, same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and, and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, 
that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. You see, you have this, this spontaneous feast now leads to an annual holiday, so they wouldn't forget. There's a yearly reminder, a commemoration of God's salvation. And, and one way they celebrated, interestingly enough, was by blessing the poor. You see that in verse 22? They give gifts to the poor. They give to the needy. Quite a contrast to their enemies who are certainly fighting for their own gain. Uh, the Jews now are filled with, with generosity, not greed. As they, they continually, every year, want to celebrate this by blessing those in need. How much more should we? I wonder what opportunities your community group has to identify need and begin to uh, bless those because of the blessing in which you have received in God. Well, they have this feast now, this annual feast. It's called Purim. You note that beginning in verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all Jews, all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur. There's the key word. That is lots to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his, own, his sons should be hanged on gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and all they had faced in this manner and of what had happened to them. Purim, that word Purim, is just a, a Hebrew word, plural form of Pur. Pur or Purim is, 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 is a dice. Okay, uh, lots. You see, they cast lots. We still use that phrase. You know, we talk about our lot in life. We have, we have this silly thing called a lottery. Okay, that, that's where we're getting those ideas. David praises God, says, you have made my lot secure. In other words, his lot or the circumstances of his life are in God's control. Now, Haman, if you remember, wanted to discern the best day and to kill the Jews. He cast Purim in order to do so to consult the spirits, to consult the gods. To guide him, what, what day is the best? That's how we got to this 13th day of the month of Adar. They're going to call the holiday Purim in somewhat of an ironic way, aren't they? Because Haman thought the spirits were guiding them, but we now see it was God himself, actually. Right? Haman rolled the dice, but God controls the outcome. And so they celebrate God's providence. This is not chance, they say. This is God's sovereign rule. And this is a truth that they wanted generations to know and to celebrate. As you see in verse 27, it's not just for them. It's for the Jews to come. Verse 27 tells us the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. That without fail, they, should, they would keep these two days according to what was written. And at the time appointed every year. So it's not just for them. It's for their offspring. In verse 28, we see it's for every generation. They'll go on to talk about descendants. Once again, this is about their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. They want to tell the coming generations of the grace of God to us, the grace of God through us, so that others will come to trust in that same gracious God. This is why whenever we have a child dedication, we, we read from the book of Psalms, which tells us we will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, right? And not, by the way, not just future generations. Notice their neighbors too. Did you see that little phrase there in, uh, in verse 27? All who join them. So the door's wide open for anyone who wants to become part of God's people. And they don't want to forget it. As you see in verse 28, and these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province and city. 
And these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. We have to remember. Let's build a monument. Let's have a memorial. Let's have an annual, unceasing celebration of God's salvation. Now, I tell you once again, Christians, you have, you have even more reasons to celebrate. We have our annual celebrations as well, our memorials and commemoration of what God has done, our feasts that are supposed to be in God's honor. My question for us, is God honored in them? Are they about God? Are they remembering and celebrating what God has done? Right? Sometimes we celebrate these Christian holidays without any reference to God at all. I hope they didn't, because in just a matter of years, well, they'll go on from being under the thumb of Persia to being under the thumb of Greece. And then after Greece, they'll be under Roman occupation. And I wonder what comfort it must have been to the Jewish people who were continually occupied by oppressive regimes to trust that God's salvation shown to us in the ancient days of Persia point not only to a great God, but a future rescue. And so they celebrated, as you see in verse 29. The queen, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of King Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth. And these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. Verse 32 is interesting, isn't it? The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. I think verse 32 is interesting in light of how this book started. Remember the book started? And there was an edict sent throughout the entire empire, in effect, declaring women should be kept in their place. Okay? We get to the end of the book, and now there's an edict sent to the entire empire from a command from a woman who has now seemed to have great authority in this empire. And her command is to rejoice. Her command is to remember. Her command is to celebrate. And that command, I think, is passed on to us. May I remind you this morning that God came and lived as a man, did so without sin, died to pay for our our sins upon the cross, three days later was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, has given us his spirit, has begun to change our nature, intercedes from us. One day we'll return and establish a new kingdom, a new world, a new earth, without any sin whatsoever, in which you and I, by his grace, shall inherit. In the meantime, he says, I am preparing a place for you. I am setting a table for you because I love you and I serve you and I am the king of kings and I will never forget you and you are in my hand and we shall be together now and forevermore. There's reason to celebrate. There's reason to commemorate. I don't care how difficult your days are, Christian. This is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. It only gets better because of Christ. I think we, we need to remember that. We need to cast our eyes on that. We need to learn to have parties in God's honor and to celebrate and to cheer and to sing even in church. Right? Okay. Am I losing some of you? Okay. Okay. Right? It's okay to clap. 
Praise God. It's okay to shout. It's okay to sing. It's okay to declare amen. Hallelujah. God lives. Listen, don't just believe the truths. Enjoy the truths. Who has truths like we do? And just don't store them in our head and let them come out of your life as we live in celebration and honor of what God has done for us in anticipation of what he shall one day do. Scene number four, lastly, anticipation. And here we come to chapter 10, verse 1. It's a weird verse. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. It just seems out of place to me, right? We're just celebration, salvation, uh, annual, annual feast. Oh, by the way, remember King, he's, he's still on his throne. He's still taxing the people. I think what this verse is doing here is, is reminding us, as good as things are, not everything's changed, right? There's still a vicious, oblivious, perverted king who's ruling the world. Right? And he taxes them, which sounds about right, doesn't it? Because he was promised 10,000 talents of silver if the Jews were killed. didn't get any of that, okay? And he says, okay, you're living. I guess I'll have to tax you, okay? That's what the government does. It, you, either, you either die or it taxes you. And, I, and in our land, uh, we're even better. When you die, it taxes you then, just for one last time for kicks, okay? And so we see it's going to tax you, okay? And taxes go up, and yet they still rejoice. Isn't that interesting? Which shows us that the people of God can rejoice and celebrate and worship even when the political leadership over them is not godly. As we see an example of that, as they long for a perfect king, which I believe Mordecai is a foreshadow of, as you see in verse 2. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I think he's pointing us to Jesus. Now, I know in the book of Esther, I've spoken a lot about Jesus. I, I think I've done so because I think Jesus teaches me to do so. You remember that time when Jesus encounters some guys and they're, they're, they're talking about scripture. And he says, well, do you know what the scripture is about? They say, tell us what it's about. He says, it's actually about me, which I think is a very bold statement. The Bible's about me. And then in, in Luke 24, twice he has this Bible study with people. And he takes them throughout the entire Old Testament. And he shows them that, that the, the Bible is always pointing to him. Listen, And as I tell you, every, every once in a while, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's for you. It's about Jesus. So if you're reading the Bible and you end up somewhere other than Jesus, you took a wrong turn. You ought to go back and, and try again. It points to Christ. And so, and, and, and he showed them this. I mean, what a Bible study to go to. Jesus going through the Old Testament, showing, he gets to Genesis and says, don't, well, don't, you, don't you understand? I'm the better Adam. I, I, I'm the one who resisted temptation and imputes a righteousness, not sin. Uh, I, I'm a... He, he might have said, I'm the better Abel. I'm the one, though, who's been innocently killed. His blood doesn't cry out for vengeance, but actually cries out for acquittal. I, I'm the woman's seed. 
who, though he will be struck by the serpent, will crush his head. I, I'm, the, I'm the better Abraham. I, I'm the one who has been called to go to a foreign land in order to bless the nations. I'm the better Isaac. I'm the son of promise who carries the wood of his sacrifice. I'm, I'm the goat caught in the thicket who takes his place. I'm the better Jacob who, who starts a nation that belongs to God. I'm the tree of life, and by my fruit you shall live forever. I'm Noah's ark. I shall deliver you safely through the wrath of God, and on and on. And then he goes to Exodus, and he says, about me, it's about me, it's about me. It's like, it's Leviticus, it's about me, it's about me. He gets to Esther and says, don't you see, it's about me. Now, if I could have been at that study in Luke 24 and heard Jesus teach Esther, this would have been a much better sermon series, okay? I mean, how incredible would that be? Let me take Esther, Jesus, Jesus on Esther. Let me show you how it points to me, okay? It's all about me. And so I think it's fitting for us to end this wonderful little book thinking about Jesus. Even as we see Mordecai here at the right hand of the king, reminding us that Jesus too has been exalted to the right hand of God. We see Mordecai reigning over a kingdom, a kingdom that come to end. And Jesus' kingdom will never cease. We see that Mordecai has saved his people from a premature death. But our, our king, our Lord, will save us from an eternal death. And then, of course, we see there in the very last verse, Mordecai spoke peace. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Does Christ speak peace to us? He is, after all, the Prince of Peace. What a peace he has brought. Do you know why we can have that peace with God? And we've said it over and over in this sermon, haven't we? Why can Jesus speak peace to us? Because when we were God's enemies, he treated Jesus as his enemy instead. And when Jesus died upon the cross, bearing our punishment for sin, God declared a holy war on his son, on his own son. He had war against his son poured out his wrath, the full measure of his wrath for my sin and for your sin onto Jesus so that we might have peace. And we have that peace of God and yet we wait for the completion of it, don't we? We wait for the completion of our salvation. You you read this book uh, and you get to the end and and you see, okay, things have improved for the people of God. But your guy, Mordecai, is still just number two, right? To a wicked king. The evil empire remains. Yeah, it's a great salvation for sure, but it's only a partial salvation. And I think in that way, we too kind of live in Persia, right? The world still opposes God. That's why we need this book, because we're right in the place that they are. And we learn, of course, that God rules and God will deliver us. And in the end, what we learn is that God wins and his people celebrate. I remind you, in the midst of a crazy day in which we live, you've got race riots and pandemics and you're all wearing face masks. How bizarre is that? Hey, and, and, and all the rest, are, 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 even our great state is passing laws that restrict religious freedom and, and stands in opposition to the teaching of God's word. We live in a, a difficult world. But what Esther teaches us is that we're just in the middle of the story, right? The movie hasn't ended yet, right? Always in the middle. The good guy's always losing, right? So don't throw the popcorn on the floor and march out of the movie and say, I hate this movie. Okay, wait till the end. It gets better. The king is coming in victory. Okay, the enemies will be defeated. Sin will be crushed. Death will be no more. And we will live under his reign, a perfect, righteous, and peaceful reign in his kingdom forever. And on that day and forevermore, we will celebrate like we've never celebrated before. Right? That's right. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. It will be a feast far better than Purim, won't it? 
We, we, people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every color, along with the angels in heaven, celebrating to the praise of our great king. That's where you're going, Christian. Don't lose sight of that in the midst of this crazy day. The days are hard in which we live. Let's be a cause for change, for godliness and righteousness and judgment, but let's never forget that God is reigning. Peace is coming, and you and I will rejoice forevermore. Our Father, we are thankful for that great reminder. We are thankful for the grace in which we have received. Oh, we have much to rejoice in. And even in the day to come, we will have far more on that great day of redemption, that great day of salvation. And we rejoice and thank you that rather than casting us off, you have instead offered us grace and mercy costly grace and mercy at the cost of your own son that he would die for us in our place that we might be yours forever may we carry that truth in our hearts just not in our minds may may we leave here with a spring in our step joy in our heart for what you have done and that we would be eager to share this great news with those who are in desperate need of it that there is a God who has made them, who loves them to the point of sending his son to die for them, and that they might have salvation through faith in him. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.